0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. And today we are discussing what I think is just a hugely critical topic. And we're going to get at it through a hugely influential article for both of us. And it's titled Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair by David Pallison. So, Dad, I'm thankful you brought this up to talk about. I've mentioned it in a sermon last week because it's been hugely formative for me. And as we were talking, we thought this is just something that is so fundamental to the outlook of sin in our life, how we change, how we grow as Christians. What struck you about it that would, that would make for a good conversation? Well,
1: a lot of times as pastors, we break our pastoral duties into people that come to us and we can address certain spiritual ideas, like how is your faith, are you reading your Bible, are you living out your faith, that kind of a thing. But if you're having marital difficulties, if you have sin patterns in your life, that kind of thing, it's very easy in our society to say, well, actually, that's outside my purview, you need to go to see a counselor. That's not a bad thing, I'm not condemning it, I'm simply saying we've carved up the territory a little bit. But as I read the Bible, that's always made me a little uncomfortable that we put such a sharp line. And I'm not denigrating the you know, counseling by any means or pastoring by any means, but we make a pretty sharp line there. What I saw paulison do was, as a theologian, as a you know, psychologist, and, and as a Christian, really put those things together a little bit more, because the Bible— really talks a lot about idolatry, and it talks about idolatry as driving a lot of what we do, and I think that idolatry, this concept, is an overlap between those two camps for Mm. Christian counselors and pastors doing pastoral counseling. I just felt it was a very useful way of looking at it. It struck me as a very biblical way of looking at it, so it was very enlightening
0: for me. Yeah, I've I've loved... David Pallison's work, he is a licensed counselor. He is a psychologist, but he is he's a Presbyterian and he is an elder in the Presbyterian church. And and they put a huge emphasis on what we would call pastoral counseling, which is almost Mm -hmm. a way of saying we're, we're not really talking about the technical practice of counseling, the profession of counseling. We're talking more about the biblical category of wisdom and walking in wisdom with other people. Learning to walk in wisdom yourself, and so I, I would just give a disclaimer from the get go: we're 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 not counselors in that sense, and we're not trying to be. But but I've I've said I think on the podcast before in ministry, whether you're a pastor or a leader or just somebody who's trusted by by a friend who comes and asks for life advice. I think on the one hand, we need to be more firm on the areas where we do need to send somebody to a counselor. Don't we don't need a hero mentality of right. you know, this is beyond my expertise, but I'm gonna do my best. We need a very strong sense of that. And on the flip side, more pastors need to do more spiritual direction with people. This this is not acute kinds of uh, counseling cases. This is much more, how do we get the gospel down into everyday life? How do we change? How do we repent of our sins? How do we deal with the temptations that we still have? This is the work of counseling. In fact, David Powelson has a great article called The Pastor as Counselor. And uh, he's basically talking about, look, you know, part of the job of the pastor is to teach and reprove and correct and exhort. And maybe we don't call that counseling so that we can separate these terms a little bit. That is spiritual direction. And that's what this article, I think, is so good at talking about is how we take spiritual direction for ourselves and and give it to others. He starts out kind of on that foot. He starts out with a really interesting question. And I think if you've spent time really diving into your own heart and uh, whether it's been in an accountability group or just in your own quiet time, this question has probably arisen how exactly is sin more than just bad behavior? You know, right. so we t- we sometimes define sin as doing the wrong thing, which is that is sin in a certain sense. You know, the Ten Commandments, if you think about them, there's a lot of actions that you can do that are sinful. But surely there's more to sin than just doing bad things. Because the, the actus at that point would be doing bad things and then doing good things. And you have this kind of neutral category of not doing bad things. Is that right. it? Is is that the yeah. Christian life? Is that what we're trying to attain? Is just resisting any kind of outward bad thing? Right. And Pallison really just takes this by the horns at the beginning of this article, and he says, "You know what's interesting is the last line of the Book of First John. First John chapter five, verse twenty-one. John ends this letter with kind of an odd way to leave. It's almost like the end of the letter is missing." He says, beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. And he says, the Bible, more than anything else when it comes to sin, talks about sin as idolatry. Right. So how, and he's looking at this from both a technical perspective and from just a wisdom kind of biblical perspective. How do we reconcile our general notion of sin with the biblical category of idolatry? The Bible is very clear. The greatest problem that the Bible addresses is idolatry. Do we see sin as idolatry? That's where the article starts. I think that's a really great way to get into this topic.
1: You know, I do, too. He makes a point that I think we'd all agree with. He said, you know, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no idols. He said, you know, we all read that. This is true. I've done this too. I read that and I go, well, that's one I got. That's an easy one. You know, that's a gimme. I I believe only in God and and that's a gimme. And he says, you know, maybe it's not as much a gimme as we think it is. And Mm -hmm. he's going to argue that the reason the Bible talks so much about it is the the fact that it's actually not at all uh, obvious that idolatry is more than just uh, managing behavior. It's more than just I believe in God and I don't believe in something else as the ultimate in life. He says, no I, idols are at work in our hearts, not just in our external behavior. And I thought that was really enlightening. That that first commandment is the first commandment for a reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'll go on to say, and others have said this too, that actually all sin is downstream from breaking that first commandment in one right. way or another when you, even externally, when you sin, it's because somewhere previously there is an idol that has taken root in your heart. There's a false worship. There's a false love. There's a false desire that's taken place in your heart that's displaced. The right ordering of the soul, the right ordering of the heart is worship and love for God. And the moment that that Wanes or shifts, or something else creeps in to take that that place. There's going to be an outflow of sin in your life, and so this idolatry sin are are related to each other. I think we could say that all sin is related to idolatry. It's downstream from idolatry, um, but there are certain idols in our heart that haven't borne any external sins yet. You know, in, internally, yes, right. not worshiping God is sinful, but looking from the outside in. We're actually interested in in more than just external behavior. Yes. If you think about the framework that most of us are
1: thinking about uh, of sin in a pragmatic way, we think about it, and this is the categories that he uses, and you'll see this in psychology and sociology as well, whether it's Christian or not, is that you have certain internal, intrinsic motivators toward bad behavior, or we would call as Christians, sin, you have this intrinsic motivator. For example, I have some internal desire for pleasure, or some internal desire for security, and it makes me act, behave in in sinful ways. The other is external. There are sociological factors. In other words, there's temptations. This is what we would normally call a temptation. Walk down. Main Street in Las Vegas, and you say, "Yes, this is a society that is trying to bombard me with the idea that I should go do something that is sinful." And so, where Paulson's going to say, "He said, yes, those those things do happen to us," but he said the Bible is is going to take a slightly different approach: is that sins are not so much just intrinsic or social, but they're always motivated by a God relationship. In other words, he's going to suggest that behind both of those factors is the essential God relationship in our heart. And I thought that was an interesting way of of looking at it from just shifting the lens, if you will, to a biblical way of looking at those motivators, whether they're internal or external. He's going to say it comes back to the God relationship in our heart.
0: Right. And, and, you know, this is not just something that David Pallison thought up. This, right. this is something that's straight from the teaching of Jesus. Just, just put in relief compared to what we typically talk about when we talk about sin. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, that, that's exactly what we're talking about. Out of the overflow of the worship of the heart, the person sins. I mean, that's, that, mm-hmm. that's the connection here. Or like when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, you heard it said, if you commit murder, you know, murder is wrong. But I say to you. That if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder in your heart. OK, so that, that's an idolatry understanding right. rather than just an external you've done the wrong thing understanding of sin. So the question that Pallison is asking and and you, you know, if you sit, if you spend any time with somebody doing accountability before this is really going to resonate because the worst feeling is when you're meeting with somebody or you're in an accountability group and this and and somebody just over and over and over again is trapped in the same sin over and over again and it's not that putting obstacles in the way isn't important i mean sometimes those can be almost like a tourniquet or you know putting pressure on a wound right. to just stop the bleeding you know but at the end of the day those are not long-term solutions Th- those are short-term solutions you know putting obstacles in the way of sins rewiring, you know, the way that you think about certain things, your routines, etc. cetera, that stuff can be important. But if you've been in a place where you've seen somebody do that kind of thing over and over and over again, and basically invent new ways to sin, then you realize the problem is much mm-hmm. deeper. And Pallison is going to phrase the question this way, who or what rules my behavior? Who's occupying the seat of worship in my heart? The Lord or a substitute. This is, this is the foundational level when it comes to mm-hmm. idolatry is what is controlling me? What is my vision of the good life? What is my deepest desire? What are my perceived needs? That will tell you why you're behaving the way that you are. Exactly. He, he is going to use
1: consistently the word who is motivating me rather than what is motivating me simply to make the point that he he's going to say that the Bible is going to characterize the deep heart motivation as always serving a little G God. It's a who that is motivating me. And I agree with you. It can be a vision of what I need for a fulfilled life or something like that. But that's, that is a little G God that's motivating me even more than, uh, And this is really where I think you have to read this and think about this a little bit. He's going to say that's even behind. That's even deeper than what you think is meeting your needs. There is the argument. And this this was really eye-opening to me. And I thought about this for quite a long time. He's going to say that sometimes we think of idols as we want something legitimate. And we're using the idol to help us get it instead of using God to help us get it. But the way I just said that ought to make you cringe just a little bit. Mm -hmm. He's going to actually say neither one of those is actually what's happening here. You think that little G God, that idol is the need that you actually Mm -hmm. have. And I I really like that because I I don't think any of us would agree that using Jesus as a way to get to our
0: needs is really what we're about. Right. Yeah, if you go back to our last episode, we talked about that illustration of the ticket and the show, you know, right. once you get to the show, you don't need the ticket. Well, that's a vision of idolatry is right. God is the ticket to get you something else, or an idol is the ticket to get you something else. And, and then right. God is just left out of the whole process. I mean, that, right. that exchange is essentially idolatry. And uh, if we're going to rid our lives of certain besetting sins, we have to understand that. And if we're going to help people and give them biblical wisdom, we've got to understand that. One of the themes in this article that I thought was really helpful is what can a Christian offer someone that a non-Christian can't? Especially what can a Christian offer another Christian? You know, a a Christian can offer a non-Christian a vision of this. But what can a Christian offer a Christian if they come to you for advice or if you're helping somebody work through something that a non-Christian can't? Well, a a non-Christian can work through certain symptoms. You know, say a person is struggling with addiction, alcoholism, they're struggling with pornography, they're struggling with telling white lies. Whatever the problem is, how do you begin to approach that? You need to understand the symptoms, but Christians are looking for something that unbelievers are not looking for. They're looking for things like unbelief, fear of man, love of money ungodliness. Mm -hmm. Those are the deeper forms that idolatry begins to take. My God is pleasure. You can even go deeper than that. You know, my God is pleasure because I left to myself feel inadequate. That's a shame Mm -hmm. problem. That's a guilt and shame problem that we read in the Bible is the human condition outside of Christ. You know, so you get down to the fundamental layer. That's what that is. Or yeah, just unbelief of you, you claim to be a Christian but you actually don't live like any of these things are really true down in the core of who you are. This is something that a Christian can and should be looking for in their own soul, and it's something that we can help look for in others is okay, it's it's not just about the presenting symptom, it's the underlying condition here that's motivating the sin. And so that that's a big deal is we we can actually open up a whole deeper level of talking about things. And then Secondly, we can we can point people to the major change agent in a situation like that. So, so it's one thing to say, you know, how do you stop smoking? Well, you've got to mm-hmm. go ahead and reframe your habits. You've got to throw all your cigarettes away. You've got to do all this stuff externally. But but deep down inside, what does the smoking say about you? You know, that that's the question that you should really ask once you're once you're past just the logistical part of this. You get down into what what are the things that motivated that behavior in the first place or else it's going to be one of those, you know, the next time you try to quit and the next time you try to quit and the next time you try to quit.
1: That's exactly right. And I I know that this is something that we all know, but Pallison frames it up very well. If you think about it from that point of view, and let's just use the smoking, is it a good thing to stop smoking? Absolutely, it's a good thing to stop smoking. But until you get to the idol underneath that, then today it's smoking tomorrow. It's some other manifestation of that idol. And so is it good to quit smoking? Of course, it's good to quit smoking, but you really haven't gotten to the idol. It is going to manifest itself in some other way. So this idea about idolatry at the root of this really leads you to a different question of what does change actually look like? What kind of change does the gospel intend in us? And we know it's more than behavioral, but I think you know, that really brings us to that question, is what is the mechanism for change and what is actually what does change actually look like? I think we would agree it looks like more than cleaning up our exterior habits. Right,
0: yeah, it's, it's fundamentally a change of worship. And it's a change right. of what you love, which only the Holy Spirit can really do in our life. We can participate with the Spirit, uh, but the Spirit is going to be the one that changes our hearts. And a, a passage I love on biblical change is in Second Corinthians chapter 3, that we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next from now into eternity by beholding the face of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is an element of just by being brought back into fellowship with God through Jesus, the change process has begun in your life. You know, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And he is not saying that because the Philippians are just full of this tenacious grit, although they might have been. Right. He's saying that because that is actually what happens for every person That draws near to Jesus Christ and repents of their sins and lives a new life reconciled to God. The change process has begun in your life. And that's what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing. So, so that factor is there. And what happens is we have a reorientation of the heart to love God and the things that God loves and to love others, the way that Jesus phrases it in the the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. We love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. That becomes the transformed identity. Of a Christian. And what's going to happen is if that really takes root in you, it's going to reframe the way that you behave. Not all at once, it's going to be a gradual change, but that's going to reframe the way that you act and the way that you think and the way that you talk. And so what Pallison really brings to the table here is if the gospel is applied all the way down, you start to see seismic shifts on the level of your idols that is going to impact getting rid of sin in your life. Whereas if you just deal with getting rid of sin in your life, the idol might just stay intact.
1: Right. I, I'll give you a personal story, and I'll bet others have stories much like this. But I, uh, in my late teens, I started smoking because I was working on farm uh, harvesting tobacco, which was my patriotic duty to smoke as a Kentuckian. So I did, <laughs> and I smoked into my 20s. And then I realized, OK, this is this is horrible. I, I need to stop doing this. And so I, I do. So I'll make a long story kind of short. So I stopped smoking and immediately did what almost everyone who stops smoking does is I gained 20 pounds because I was eating more sweets. Mm-hmm. Well, then I decided, you know, by the time I hit 30, it's like, well, wait a minute. I can't can't be walking around with these 20, 25 extra pounds. So then I got into running and you would say, well, it's good you quit smoking and sugar's better. And they said, well, you know what? Running's even better than sugar. So then I get to be a runner and I get the, you know, the endorphins and the runner's high. And I'm like, OK, that's great. That's doing really well. But then, you know, after a few years of this, you stop and you think and you go, you know what? This is whack-a-mole. This is going to be always changing some outward behavior. And so then you look behind it. And this is where God starts doing a work in my life and I'm sure in many of yours as well to say, what's laying under this? Well, at the first level, smoking was a stress management uh, for me. And and that's probably true for a lot of people. Well, then I replaced it with another stress management tool. Uh, Again, not particularly healthy. Then I replaced it with a really healthy stress, stress management tool. But all the while, that underlying uh, desire of the heart, if you will, was there. And it took several years for me to kind of get this biblical understanding that God actually wants to do way more than this in my life. And I think that's, that's when the gospel and this idea of idolatry and all started to become more real to me. And it was liberating. So my prayers changed from help me quit smoking to God, uh, change my heart that you are the fulfillment of all of my needs and help me help my head to preach to my heart, to believe what I know that you are, uh, the answer to, to the deepest needs, the, every need that I have. And so that for, since that time, it has been a process of sanctification, not trying to do behavioral change nearly as much as it is trying to
0: get rid of those idols and, and put them out of my life. Right. That, that's a, great example because you can easily see how just dealing with those individual things somebody comes into your life in that moment they think the problem mm-hmm. is whatever that thing is that you happen to be on at the time whereas from a biblical perspective we should look beneath the surface as you're talking about is there pride there is there you know a tendency to try to save ourselves there is there mm-hmm. unbelief that god is enough for us whatever it is and you know i don't know in that situation what it was for you but that's what we're looking for Because that's actually going to dislodge the idol in the heart. I love the way that Pallison ends the article. He says, the biblical gospel delivers from both personal sin and situational tyrannies. That'd be the kind of outward situational stuff you were talking about uh, at the beginning of the episode. The biblical notion of inner idolatries allows people to see that their need for Christ as a merciful savior from both large sins and small behaviors. This exposes our motives, our hearts and our world in such a way that the authentic gospel is the only possible answer. Right. This is really a profound statement. Do we view our problems in such a way that the gospel is the only true answer? If we don't, if there's other answers available, we don't see the problem clearly or deeply enough. We might see it downstream a little ways where we think that Some kind of modification is the answer. But if we see our problems clearly enough, we'll be forced to conclude that the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ is the only real solution for us. That's the point we really want to get to. If you don't get to that point, um, you're not dealing with everything that's available to you as a believer. So the way that he kind of works through this article is he, he throws out some of these big ideas and then he, he starts to talk about how to apply some of these to real life? So he does a great case study mm-hmm. in here about a guy and works through what might be going on, and he he brings up this neighborhood of idols idea that might be going on in the heart. And it struck me that we need two we need two theological concepts working in our minds if we're really going to deal with sin the right way. The first one is we need a correct theology. We need a, a correct belief about God, which is mm-hmm. all action, all behavior, all thought, every motive of the heart is is in a way before God, before the face of God, with respect to God. There's nothing in the universe that doesn't involve God. All of our actions, all of our thoughts, all the, the movements of our heart are actually with respect to God. We've got to understand that, that there is no neutral ground. It, it, it's all in relationship to God. And so how you act in relationship to God is a very important question. You know, I've heard Paulson give an example of you, you're going to make a great presentation and it's really important and you really need this for work and you get into a traffic jam and there's a wreck and you're sitting there for 30 minutes. You miss the entire appointment. How do you respond? Well, in that moment, most people are responding with respect to the person that they just had to cancel on and they missed the appointment and all of that. But mm-hmm. hardly anybody asked the question, how do you respond in that situation with respect to God? How do you respond with respect to God who is present, who is all powerful, who is all knowing? When you operate on that axis, then we get a more accurate picture of what's going on in the heart. The second thing is we need an accurate anthropology. We need an accurate belief about human beings, the way that we are actually constructed, the way that we exist. Mm -hmm. We are not just physical beings. We are not just materialist. We, the the truest things about us, the deepest things about us occur in the spirit, in the soul, in the heart, and they are connected. uh, And you can't separate that from the physical. That's who we are as human beings. We are physical and we are spirit. And sometimes I worry, and this is where I would always caution people, you know, there's there's certain things that are common grace fixes that, that uh-huh. anybody can can help us with. But for most things, I would always caution people against going to a non-Christian counselor, because if the counselor that you're working with cannot see that the deepest problems occur in the soul— then you're not going to somebody that sees the complete picture. In in that sense you're not going to somebody that actually sees you as you are. They just see you as an abbreviation of who you are. And so the the metaphor I'd always use for this is you you really don't want to take your Tesla to a Ford dealership. Because right. the people at the Ford dealership are used to working on a certain system, a certain fuel injection. They're they're used to working on something they've been trained to work in. But your car actually doesn't run on the same sustenance that the Ford does, that a gas-powered car does. And so are there things that they could do for you at the Ford dealership that would be really helpful? Absolutely. A car is a car in in some sense, and there's going to be some things that they can help you with. But as a general rule, when you get down to the real essence of what the car needs, that's not the place to go because they don't share the same anthropology. They don't share the same anthropology of the car. That you need and so for for Christians we need to keep in mind that there is going to be a widening gap between us and the world on what we actually think the fuel system is in a human being and we need when somebody's going to operate on that level right we need them to share the anthropology that we have yeah I, I agree with that completely and I do think that uh, good Christian
1: counseling understands this. Uh, I know that uh, at Crossings Church, and this is probably true at many churches, so I'm not just singling out Crossings for doing something really good here. Crossings View, uh, our pastor Marty Grubbs has said this many times, that there's some people that come in on a stretcher, if you will, and they need some counseling to get them to the point where we can actually begin to talk about the real gospel. And I think there's great value in that idea is not everybody comes in healthy. Sometimes in the ER, we got to stop the blood flow. Now we want to talk about your, your health, so to speak. And I think that's that's exactly right. If we just stop the blood flow, say that's where we stopped, we would not be doing uh, our job. We wouldn't be presenting the gospel. But if we can stop the blood flow and then talk to you about, let's make sure this never happens again. Let's talk about who you really are and meeting your deepest needs. And I think that that can be useful. But if you just take the other part away and you just go into the four dealer and say make it run. Uh you know, just do what it takes to make it run, you're doomed to a life of it's just going to be one thing after another. You're never going to have peace. And I think that's why the scripture can talk so much about having a peace that passes understanding. When you understand that Uh, Our anthropology is this. As you said, we're not just material beings. We're created in the image of God. And one of the things that means is there's more to us than dust. There's more to us than matter. We participate in a real, you know, 3D world, this universe. But there's a piece of us that also lives in the spiritual world, the spiritual reality. And I think if you're just trying to look at us as merely another animal that's uh, you know, going to live and die and turn into nothing, and there's nothing more to us than that, then you're going to have a hard time really touching the heart of who we are. And if that sounds supernatural, it should, because the Bible is nothing if not super beyond natural.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's why we say that the deepest need, again, sometimes you're doing tri- triage and you just need to, to deal with the presenting issue. But the underlying issue can only really be solved by the gospel, because that is the solution to our greatest spiritual need.
1: Well, changing direction just a little bit. There's one thing I wanted to get you to comment on, because this was very eye-opening for me. He, in his case study, uh, he talked about a guy who's got a number of of things going on in his life, and maybe we we'll, I'll just say it this way: he may have more than one idol. He, you know, he may be chasing. A number of, of things. One of the things that he says is that idols counterfeit certain aspects of God's identity and character. Well, that makes sense because Jesus said Satan is a liar and he's the you know the father of lies. In other words, all these idols are Satan lying, saying, This is your deepest need, this can solve you know the the solution of who you who you really are. This can this can satisfy you. He says, and those are those are lies, those are imposters. And one of the things he said about the individual in this story is he, here's a quote, "His life was implicitly validating many lies. Mm. And I like that because, as I said, you know, it's not just one root idol. Like, oh, if I could just find the one thing and and get rid of that, it, like you said, maybe a neighborhood of idols. I've, maybe i maybe I've believed more than one lie. And I really like that. He said, his life validated many different lies." And that just was very eye-opening to me that where in my life am I validating a lie? Am I acting as though one of Satan's lies is actually true? Mm -hmm. That was just eye-opening to me that he pointed that out in the case study.
0: Yeah, I think that that gets us back on the really helpful axis of idolatry versus faith. That's one of the things he, he ends the case study with is, The antithesis to idolatry is faith, faith in the promises of God, faith that what God says is true about us, not what other people say or our experience says. Or, you know, in his case, the way that we live might implicitly belie the fact that we believe certain things to be true. Faith is the opposite of idolatry because it takes God at his word and lives like his promises are actually true. Yeah,
1: that gave new meaning to me as I've been in my studies and some what I've been teaching, but just some of my reading. I've come across several times, various versions of this statement. Live your life in a manner consistent with your calling. And and I'll translate that a little bit. Live your life like you actually believe what Jesus says is true. And I just see that several places. And you're right, Cole. That's all over the New Testament because that is the heart of the gospel. Do you really believe that God is who he says he is, that I am who I he says I am, and that Jesus is has indeed done what he says he has done.
0: Right, and this is this is an important point, too, because we can think that faith is kind of a one-time thing. You need to put your faith in Jesus so that you can be saved, and then back to your regularly scheduled programming. But faith right. actually runs through the entire Christian life because once you put your faith in Christ— what you're essentially doing when you do that is you are believing God's promise that those who turn to him repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ's finished work for them he will raise them up on the mm-hmm. last day he will forgive them he will right. adopt them into his family you're you're believing all those things that God has said are true the christian life then is living in an increasing way like what God is God has said is true is true for all of life You know, our identity is on the level of belief. Do we really believe what God says about us or do we live kind of implicitly like what everybody else has always said about us is true or what we feel like is true? That's faith. Faith is, no, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to live my life like I am a child of God and that I am loved deeply, that he is never going to give up on me, that he is never going to change his mind about me, that he's given the most costly thing in the universe to restore me to him. I have access to him when I pray. I mean, all those things, that's active faith is living like those things are true living like, you know, the fruit of the spirit that come out of our life is actually more rewarding. It's more consistent with our new nature than cutting corners or going back to our old sinful ways or, you know, believing that, right. Doing things that God commands us to do, even though they might be temporarily painful, are going to bear fruit in eternity because that's the way God has designed us to work. Whereas everything else around us might be saying, no, actually, if you'll just do this, you'll be a lot happier and wealthier and well thought of or whatever, you know, you're longing for. Faith is saying, no, I believe what God has said about this, not what the world or other people or my inward feelings or Vanity Fair, which is all of this stuff would tell me is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And it's changed the way I pray.
1: We've probably talked about this before because this is not a new idea. Whenever we read and talk about the Puritans, this fundamental idea comes up over and over. This is a biblical idea that people have known for 2000 years, but it changed the way I pray. And I pray very much less for God to change my behavior and more for God to continue to shape my heart and to Mm. submit my heart to God. It's basically believing what the scripture says, that God is able to finish the work he has begun in me. And so I I really, it really changed my prayers to be a little more trying to get at the idols of my heart and the inclinations. I like that word, The how am I inclined, the inclinations of my heart, that God would change those. And I think he's faithful to do it. I just think that's one of those things where uh, it's hard for us because I want to know what I'm supposed to do when actually I'm engaged in the process of increasingly surrendering things. And that's a different way of thinking about the Christian life.
0: Yeah. A good summary line for, for Pallison. He's he's the end of the article he's talking about. Okay. So how do you, how do you package this? How do you put it together and have kind of a workable understanding of this? And he says, The gospel is for the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, It's like a dramatic act of consecration at the beginning of the Christian life. But there is little sense of the patient process of inner renewal that each of us need. Jesus says to take up our cross daily, dying to the false gods we fabricate and learning to walk in fellowship with him who is full of grace to help us. Receptivity to God's love, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is the absolutely necessary prerequisite for any sort of active obedience to God. And I would add to that, for any sort of deep transformation. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.